Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Product Design Podcast. Today we have Justin Zalewski with us. He is the Director of Product Strategy and Design at Studio Science. Justin, thank you for hanging out with us today. Thanks, Seth. Glad to be here. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and where you work? Yeah. So as you said, I, I work at Studio Science. We're a design and innovation consultancy, and I lead a team of product and service designers at the studio. We work with clients, large and small, solving a variety of different business problems through design. I'll give a couple examples just because I know that's a super nebulous answer. So we will work with them to design their products, a lot of times the first release of their products. So work with them to define you know, what, what does an MVP in this situation need to be? And a lot of times we avoid the term MVP because it's such a loaded term, but we'll use that for, for a shorthand here and actually design that, prototype it, test it with customers, with the people it needs to serve, make sure it's actually meeting customer needs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, working from kind of a, a higher, more strategic level across a customer journey, designing a service that could be across multiple different touch points and channels, something that we're definitely still using Figma in some sense, but we need to think about how we prototype and test and sometimes run a pilot and outside of just Figma, right? Where, you know, we get into a little more of the service design aspect of things. Oh, nice. Very nice. Well, maybe while we're here and, and while we're going to eventually get into the topic more deeply, but maybe you could kind of give us a little overview of the differentiation between product design, service design, and and even UX design, if we want to just, you know, confuse everyone here. It is confusing. I And I try to, whenever I talk about service design and product design and UX, I, I try to encourage people not to get too caught up in the labels of everything. Yeah. But I, I do think there's there's some benefit to differentiating at least the mindset of service design and product design, because there's there's so much overlap in the actual skills and, and what you're doing. But I I like to contrast it this way. So with product design, where we're focusing on products, which tend to be single touch points or at least tightly packaged experiences, with service design, we're focusing on the overarching experience, which includes the experience over many different touch points and channels. So this is typically experienced over time, plus what makes those things possible, the people, the processes, the technology behind it all. So looking at the, in the you know, using service design language, not just the front stage of the customer experience, but also the employee experience and all the different moving pieces behind that help them make it a reality. What I like to bring up as well about service design is that it uses design processes and skills that are already well-established. So it's not really reinventing a lot of things. It's just applying these things towards services rather than products. So that's where, like I say, it's, it's really the mindset difference that comes into play more than it's a more than it's a huge difference in skill sense. I believe that most practitioners of UX design and product design today are probably already doing a lot of things that are in a, a service designer's tool set and already understand a lot of the underlying themes and why they're important. They're already probably co-creating with 
customers and whether they're stakeholders on the team, they're already into prototyping and running experiments to learn. It's really just the difference of looking at it from a, a service point of view rather than a product point of view. Very interesting. So it's like if there was a product where someone's customer journey started and ended exclusively within an app, you could say that that is wholly, you know, product design environment versus if something, maybe you can give us a good example of a service design concept. Yeah, well, that's a great example too, because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of apps and products out there that it might be that the entire journey is within an app, but still because it's experienced over time and it might be the difference between like, hey, I'm going to start this out in a desktop version of an app and then I'm going to get an email that says this, then I'm going to open up the mobile app. Because it's so cross-chain on across time, it can still be helpful to think of it as a service. So like, you know, obviously there are, are tons of product designers that work at companies like, you know, Airbnb or DocuSign or, or whatever it is. And these are, these are great products. They're, they're apps, right? But they're also services, right? You know, it's, they're, they're happening over time across the journey. There's lots of different factors in play. And so if you were to think very narrowly with a touch point focus of like, I'm just going to work on this mobile app, right? You might be missing pieces of the experience and some important context that the users have, where if you just kind of broaden your lens a little bit with a service design approach, you can really take into account a lot of the different factors that the users and the customers are going through in their journey that can help you to be a better designer. Nice. Very cool. Well, we'll get into that more as we go a little bit deeper into the episode, but maybe you can kind of start us off with your origin story of how you got into product design, service design as a whole from the beginning. Yeah. So my journey started in the world of graphic design. I went to school for graphic design and graduated with a degree in that. And then I just kind of naturally gravitated towards web design since I already knew how to code. It's something that's always interested me. And so that's bringing together design and development in that way just ended up being a, a good kind of natural fit for my skill set and what I was passionate about. And so through that, I found that I was much better at the visual communication and the user experience side of things than I was at the expressive side of graphic design. Mm -hmm. And so that, that pushed me further in that direction. And so through the web design work, I, I ended up, you know, almost accidentally getting exposed to more product design work just because there's a lot of UX overlap in that world. And so I, I got a taste for it. I was like, this, like, this is what I want to do. Like getting to design software products and all these different fun, like considerations and what ifs that happened and just the control and the impact you can have on the experience of, of a user. I'd never, you know, had to consider things in that extent before. And so once I got a taste for that, I immediately started to seek out other contract opportunities where I could help new entrepreneurs design their software products and just get more more and more experience doing that. So I, I was working in an in-house role at the time and that was, that was bringing me a lot of good experience as well, but it wasn't bringing me the kinds of product design experience that I was really eager for. So that's what really drove me to build up my own freelance business on the side where I started working more and more with, with clients that needed nice. product design. And so that was kind of a, a driving force in that. And that was actually how I got connected with Studio Science. I actually did work on a contract standpoint to kind of like build the relationship first. And uh, it ended up blossoming into a full-time relationship. 
Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So you, uh, you said that you knew, you already knew how to code. So it, it seemed to kind of push you in the right direction. Where and, and how did you learn to code? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get exposed to it in, in high school. We had a little, you know, just your entry level kind of stuff. And then my dad, for whatever reason, I can't remember why, because he never learned code, but was interested enough in it. Uh, maybe he read somewhere that this was going to be like the skill to have for, for future kids. And so he brought home a book on HTML4 at the nice. time that uh, me and my brother dug into and, you know, learned how to make basic websites. And, you know, we just thought it was super cool and we nerded out on it. So I had a little bit of background there. And then I came back up into play in, in college as we were trying to figure out like, all right, you know, we can design these things, but how do you make it a reality? Like, how do you put it on the internet and, and make it look the way you want it to look? And so it was with some of my perfectionist tendencies, it was very satisfying to get something to look exactly how it needed to look, especially in the, you know, 2007 version of the web where browser support was a little more wild west than it is today. It was a fun challenge to figure out how to resolve all those kinds of things. That's awesome. Yeah, those are fun days. Did um were you, mm -hmm. you coding in like Dreamweaver back then? Oh yeah. Or, nice. It was yeah, I, I had no idea there were even any other options other than Dreamweaver yeah. back then. And I was like, yeah, this is this is what people do that do this, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. I remember I was using Dreamweaver and I was like, okay, good. I'm like, I'm set. I got Dreamweaver. Like, I just need to learn this like really, really good. And then I remember like kind of hanging out with some friends who were like kind of in the space as well. And that friend started, was starting to use Sublime like text mm -hmm. editor. And he was like making fun of me for using Dreamweaver. I was like, what? There's something else out there. Like Dreamweaver is like the best. You get the preview like right there in your thing. Like why would I use this I text editor? But I know. I still it, remember how eye-opening it was when you figure out like that there's this whole stigma that real developers have about Dreamweaver. And <laughs> now I'm so embarrassed. But yeah. But the, yeah, and my my mind was open to, you know, multiple cursors and all of those like shortcuts and hacks you can do. And I was like, okay, this this is the way. Yes, exactly. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, how did you, you know, as you were getting into college, how did you know that you wanted to go into graphic design? Yeah, it took me a while to figure that out. I was, and in hindsight, this should have been another, should have been another obvious hint to me that I was a little more meant for the UX and product design world, but I nearly went into psychology. I was just yeah. always interested in how people perceive things, how people think, and especially always wanting to like create experiences for people and, and designing things visually and visual communication really fit that, that need for me really specifically. So as I kind of navigate in boss betweens, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I wanted to design video games. Right. And then I think that that same kind of theme of you want to create a, a scaffold for an experience for people to have, right. Kind of carries through into, you want to design how people absorb information how people use a, a digital tool. It's all, it's all kind of the same thread. So I just learned about more what, what graphic design was and that it's, it's more than just creating cool posters and logos. And it's really about creating hierarchy and, and, you know, creating meaning and information that really got me hooked. And I'm so glad I did because who knows, maybe I would have never found my way to product design without it. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. 
That's very cool. So I know you mentioned, you know, kind of your starting off and getting into it. I'm always curious about how people got their first job or their first opportunity for someone to allow them to to work on something and pay them. So what was what was kind of like your your first crack at like a real job doing this this sort of stuff that got you started on the path? Yeah, it and I I'm embarrassed to say that I can't remember what my what exactly my first paying gig was, but I can remember a, a few of the first ones. Sure. And there was a mix of I went to a university called Indiana Wesleyan University. And there was a program through the school where they would connect business people in the, you know, surrounding area with students that were looking to get some experience. And so through that, I got connected with some guy that won the logo for his business. And I can still remember the logo that I made and it was a terrible logo, but I still remember like the first client meeting and I was so nervous and I dressed up and I had my folder and I'm like, I'm ready to be super professional. And this guy shows up and he's in like a, I think it was an LA Lakers tracksuit. And it's like, it got holes all over the place. And like, he identifies <laughs> and is like, I think I got like $75 for that logo or something like that. I was so like psyched out of my mind. I was like, this is my first thing gig. This is awesome. What am I going to do with $75? But it, I mean, just those, those starter jobs like that helped me build a little bit of experience, a little bit of confidence doing that where I could then put together a website of, you know, here are other pieces of work I've done. I've worked for clients before. I can do these kinds of work. You know, you yep. mix in some things that clients maybe didn't pay you to do, but you did on your own, just yep. your own skill set. And then with that, what actually helped me build more, more connections, more than anything, I think was Twitter. Really? Connecting with other people in the area on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, it's not something I really have invested in for a while. Twitter now, especially now, but uh, Twitter in 2000. 22 is much different than it was in 2009. And so, but at the time, I mean, it was a cool, I mean, it was super easy to just connect with people. And, and I was shocked how receptive people were to just like, oh, hey, you're, you're a designer. Like, hey, I'm a business owner. Let's connect. And, you know, maybe there's opportunities for us to work together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like a really small, you know, relatively small, tight knit community that, uh, you know, I, I owe a lot of my, freelance experience too. That's super cool. I, I have found like networking in general is going to be your, your, your biggest ticket to, you know, taking the next step in your career change or career, just flat out, just meeting people. And I have more so, I've got a lot of value from Twitter, but it's, it's more so been around like when I am, you know, kind of like announcing something or releasing some like small product idea or blog post or something. But I feel like I've gotten a little bit more of the networking side of things from LinkedIn personally and just like connecting with someone on there, talking with them, you know, DMs, whatever, or even like, you know, random places like Slack communities. I think Slack is kind of like, Slack communities are a little bit like going away and it's kind of going more towards discord. So I'm trying to like, Mm -hmm. you know, just feel that out. But I don't know who said it. Your network is your net worth. Um, Mm. Yeah. I I don't have the attribution either, but that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you know, you could, you could 
spend all your time in the world refining and making your, you know, your designs and your portfolio perfect. But if you don't know someone and have kind of a personal relationship with them, someone who can vouch for you, it's going to be much harder to get get opportunities than if your work is is still good, but you have like taken time to personally get to know someone or make a connection with someone or something like that. Exactly. And, and totally agree. I think LinkedIn is where a lot of that is happening for, for my, myself, at least as well. I'm trying to invest a little bit more, more time and effort there. It's really the only social network I'm active on anymore. I've also, I think that's an interesting point. I've, I've seen that trend from Slack communities to Discord. Uh, do you have any favorite Discord design communities? That's a good question. I, so I always really liked Slack communities. So I, always had like a handful of different Slack communities, like the designer social club, a bunch of others that kind of like died off. But like discord has really been more so like crypto related things for me, like really degenerate, like crypto related groups and and things like that, that like, I don't know. I just, I have a hard time like viewing that in like a professional, like career Mm -hmm. sense. So I'm, I'm still trying to, I'm, I'm waiting for like the right opportunity to, to jump into that from, from that perspective. But I think, I don't know, I I think it just falls down to the pricing model of like (laughs) Discord Mm. is free and Slack deletes your history after 30 days. So you're not going to pay for thousands of people to be in your community. But, but yeah, do you have, do you have any communities that you're a part of or anything? You know, I, I have not also uh, not made the professional switch to Discord, <laughs> but uh, in terms of Slack communities, we're fortunate we have the Indie Design Slack for kind of you know, Indianapolis area. There are just plenty of people from outside of Indy there as well. So that that tends to be a really cool community. I really appreciate that one. I also, uh, so I'm the, one of the co-organizers of the XDA chapter in Indianapolis. And so I, you know, am semi-active in the IXDA Slack group and they've got, you know, all different kinds of topics and stuff like that too. For a little bit, I was getting into Product Collective as a, a Slack org and they've got some cool stuff happening in there. It's, uh, yeah, those are kind of some of my, my sure. top ones. Yeah. Haven't seen any any anything yet in Discord that's encouraged me to fully jump in, but okay. I also see that trend. I wouldn't be surprised that if I end up there eventually. <laughs> totally. So, you know, kind of looking back over your career and as you got into things, is there anything you look back and say, like, wow, I really did that right. Super glad I did this, didn't know what I was doing at the time, but it turned out fantastic for me. Or or conversely, anything that you would have looked back and say, I spent a lot of time doing this thing that was completely worthless and didn't didn't yield any results. And I wish I hadn't made this mistake or that mistake or anything like that. Yeah, I think I can kind of, connect the two there's kind of this double-edged sword of when i first moved down to indy i'm from the detroit area originally a small suburb outside of detroit and when i first moved down here i you know like i said i was working at an an in-house role and super thankful for the role i really wanted to get more product design experience outside of that and so i think that i mean the best thing that i did was to be proactive and to start to build up a freelance business outside of that rather than you know, be constrained by the yep. kinds of work I can do nine to five. And so that's something I, I am very glad that I did. And I would encourage, you know, anyone that, that wants to change what they're doing or even just 
you know, improve what they're doing to take a similar route. What I wish I would have done differently is because I was so new to the area, I wish I would have focused slightly less on the work itself, the the design work itself, and a little bit more on making connections in a new, a new city and a new environment. I think uh, while that also have some benefits for the design work itself and for my connections and networking, I wish I would have taken that opportunity sooner to establish a sense of place in a community, which, you know, eventually happened, but it just took a little sure. bit longer than I think I would have liked. And, you know, just that experience of being in a new city without an established network yet. I wish I would have done that quicker. Now, when you did do that, was that like meeting up with people for coffee or like chamber of commerce meeting type things? Or like, how, how do you build a community in a, in a local place or city? Yeah, for me, it was much more the, the one-on-one, let's grab a coffee, grab a beer kind of thing. I'm pretty introverted. And so I'm much more like, yeah, let's, let's meet one-on-one, sure. you know, going into a you know giant group or, or like mass networking event is not really going to be my thing. At least, you know, especially was not at the time. Yep. I've grown more comfortable that, with that as time has gone on. But yeah, much more like, you know, again, Twitter was my thing at the time. And so, you know, you find a designer that you respect or admire, a new entrepreneur looking to start something up and, you know, kind of soft connection on Twitter. And then as the, the timing is right, you know, it's pretty low stakes to just ask for a quick copy meeting. Yeah, that's cool. That's real cool. Yeah. I... Going back to kind of what you were saying about doing freelance and kind of building that up on the side, I think that's fantastic advice. I, I was, you know, kind of when I, when I started off my like actual career working at an agency, I felt like freelance work was really awesome because there's so many things like when you work for a company that you want to do things differently or things you don't want to do. And freelance work really gives you the opportunity to kind of flex your muscles on, on everything outside of like your core skill set. So it's like, if you're doing freelance, it's like, okay, well, you got to figure out like project management updates to the client. Like you have, and there's all of these like really, really, really good skills in addition to your core skill that, that you get to work on when you freelance. You know, it's whether it's marketing or pitching or just getting yourself set up for invoices or getting an LLC stood up or whatever. And yeah, I just, when I started doing freelance work, it was just like a fun hobby to me. It was just like, this is all extra money. Like I can kind of try to charge as much as I want. It's super risk free. I get to meet cool people. I get to work on you know, potentially cool projects. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't say enough about it. I think that's that sort of thing is kind of what helped lead me to future jobs. It's, it's what's helped lead me to create UX Cabin. So mm-hmm. I would, I'd be right where, with you there and say that's a, that's a fantastic strategy for sure. Yeah, 100%. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, just understanding some of the business aspect of it and, you know, how the work that you do relates to the value that a, a client is willing to pay for and kind of understanding that, that relationship, I think does wonders for just how you, how you care yourself, how you value your own time. Um, you know, whether or not you, you continue to do freelance or not, 
I think it, it just does wonders for how you think about your, your profession. Yeah. Did you ever read, this was really influential to me when I was first starting out as a, a freelancer. Did you read Design as a Job by Mike Montero? No, I didn't. Oh, it's a good one. It's one of the a Book Apart series. Okay. Which I think when I read it, they had, you know, like five or six books or something and they've got like hundreds now. So they, they've got a good collection. I've, I've never read a bad book in that collection, but anyways, that, that particular book did a, a, a lot to art, especially articulate well, some of the themes that are really, I think, important to understand when you're not just running your own freelance business, but thinking about yourself as a professional, as a designer and how you carry yourself, how you manage your time, how you consult and have integrity with clients. Highly recommend anybody to check that out. Nice. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to link that up in the, in, in the show notes for sure. And I mean, even in like just the ups and downs of the economy, I think it's never bad to kind of have a, 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 a decent grasp on how much you could either turn up or turn down your freelance work as needed. And like, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, maybe, maybe you're struggling to find a job, right? No one is stopping you from doing freelance work. No, the, you know, there's, there's tons of small, unless business. you have a non-compete. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unless you have a non-compete, <laughs> but yeah, if it's, if it's more so just the barrier of, of doing work, like there's tons of small businesses that aren't going to pay agencies to let them do work that, that you might be able to find work for. And everyone has a crazy uncle who wants to, you know, build some business, right? Like this is a great opportunity for you to cut your teeth on some work like that. But yeah, related to that of, of being opportunistic, right? I think one of the other things that I learned that I, tend to give advice for anybody looking to break into the UX space or just get more experience because it, it can be hard to find clients where it's it's exactly the right kind of work that you want to do. Right. It's an ideal situation or it's it's a, you know, you know it's going to be a really great portfolio piece or whatever the case might be. One of the things that I've had success with and found valuable is to deliver beyond what you're asked for. And I think you could take that two ways. And I think they're both true deliver beyond in terms of the the quality that's expected but even more in the opportunistic way i'd say you know if, if you're looking to do more product design work or, or let's say you're really interested in like I, I want to be known to build the best most robust most thoughtful design systems out there and you're getting hired for product design work but nobody wants a design system you know like why not include one anyway right you know, why not design it what's the client have to be mad about if you mm-hmm. <laughs> if you deliver what they ask you to deliver, don't charge them any extra and also provide this other thing. You know, it's a great experience for you. And, you know, it's a win-win for the client. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Because I, th- I think no matter what, even like if you're on a team or if you're an independent person, like there's going to be something that you want to own as like something that you're really good at, that you kind of have your like crown jewel of this is my thing. And for some people, maybe that's motion design, maybe it's design systems, maybe it's project management organization, like whatever it is, be kind of be thinking of what, like, what is your superpower? What is your secret sauce that people look to you, bring you in because no one else Mm -hmm. wants to do it or because no one else can do it as, as good as you. And there's like 
probably an endless amount of these things that you can look internally and say, like, what am I good at? What do I not mind doing? What am I energized by? Maybe it's prototyping. Maybe it's giving really good, you know, team updates or client updates. But uh, I think whatever it is, you can also you kind of use that to to over deliver, um, you know, as projects come across your plate and as new projects come across your your company's eyes. Yeah, exactly. I know for me, and I'm I'm curious if you've found the same thing, but I don't think I really realize some of those things of what my superpower or secret sauce was until I worked more with other people and other designers. Yeah. So kind of see like, oh, here are these things that other people are doing differently. Here are some things that they're better at than me. And then like, oh, I like it turns out I'm actually pretty good at this thing that, you know, not a lot of people are. So I think just getting that perspective from your community, people that can see your blind spots, you know, in in both a, a positive and negative way can be super helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that level of self-awareness comes in time and comes after a, a lot of working with people, but then um, I think even even more so as you get into more into your career, you start to see not just your own but other people's, and uh, you know to some degree that's when you you get into either like team lead or management space where you can kind of speak into that their lives and say like, hey, this is how you could elevate yourself over here, or I notice you're really good at this. Let's let's you know focus you as much as we can over here because I know how good you are at this. And yeah, I would be curious to kind of, you know, you to give a little bit more of the history of how you said you got started at Studio Science and then kind of how you climbed the ranks once you got in there. Yeah, so I I, I want to first know that I am very fortunate and there's a lot of luck involved in the timing of it. So I I joined Studio Science right before a period of growth at the studio. And so I want to, you know, mention that they all, you know, any kind of advice, examples with a grain of salt, because I've got the benefit of that kind of luck of timing. And then also the benefit of privilege and how and where and when I, I grew up, the opportunities that I had access to my race and gender and more. All that said, and all those kinds of like lucky timing disclaimers remind me of you know, Bo Burnham, the comedian. Yeah. So I remember somebody asked him for advice once on how to be successful in the industry. And he said that, that would be, if he were to give them advice, that would be like a lottery winner telling people to liquidate their assets and buy a bunch of lottery. <laughs> that like, will work for me is not necessarily going to work for you. Yeah. It's so much about luck. And of course, I'm not as successful as Bo Burnham. And we are in definitely different industries. But all that to say, it can be tricky to give advice. Sure. So all that said, I think a couple of things that I'm glad that I did so that when the opportunity for growth came up at the studio, I was ready. One would be I I had kind of grown this T-shaped skill set. You know, I knew what I wanted my focus to be in, in product design, but I also these other kind of complementary generalist skills of being able to also, you know, hold my own in graphic design and web design and development and SEO, all these other kinds of things that, you know, especially in a small team environment and an agency really help to show some adaptability, some flexibility, especially a lot of times the responsibilities associated with growth in an an agency or consultancy have to do with leading projects and consulting with clients. It's rare to have a client that only has 
questions and needs help in just one area. Yeah. So to, to have that general skill set can be super valuable as much as you, you still need that, that strength and superpower and, and point of focus. That's where that, that T-shape comes in. Totally. The, the second thing I am, am glad that I did is I was really explicit about my goal. And so I, I told my manager, our, our design director at the time that I wanted to lead a design team. I was not subtle about it. And thankfully he was supportive and turned the conversation into a, you know, let's talk about how that happens. For example, you know, let's show progress in people leadership, for example, mentoring interns, things like that, leading client projects, you know, taking a clear perspective on design, things like that gave me really clear, measurable goals to work towards and to make it happen. How did you know that you wanted to lead a team of designers? Yeah, some of it came from just seeing examples of what, what people around me were doing. So for example, I, my boss at the time, our, our design director, Nathan Sensabaugh, who would later become president of the company, just seeing the way that he treated team leadership and, and mentorship of designers, it just was a way I'd not thought about management before. I had, yeah, I think a pretty stodgy, maybe traditional mindset of what it meant to be a yeah. manager in my head before that. And so getting to see someone model a different way, a way of coaching and mentorship and the kinds of growth that creates in designers, that just really stuck with me and, and set a, uh, I think a new example for me to, to see management and leadership in a different light. And it was very attractive to me of like, you know, this is some, somewhere where I could make a difference in other people's lives, you know, create the kind of space, show humility and still do the kinds of work that I love to do and help other people get into the kinds of work that I've loved yeah. to do. That was very attractive to me. Very cool. So and still yeah. Is. yeah. So cool. You have now been at Studio Science for how many years? Yeah, it'll be 10 years in February. Wow. Yeah. And that is, that is like a hundred years in, in agency time. <laughs> Why don't you give us a little bit of insight into, into how to have longevity at an agency? Cause I know it's very, very normal for people at agencies to switch companies or go to a different agency or what have you every, every few years, what kind of kept you, kept you going there and engaged for so long? Yeah. I feel like a lot of it can, can really be credited to the leadership of an agency. So I, with knowing a lot of people that have worked in other agencies and consultancies, I, I know they don't always have as good of an experience as yeah. I've had. You know, there's a lot of times even a stereotype of burnout in agency culture right. of it's just, it's a grind, you know, the uh, long hours, late nights are expected. And I'm, I'm thankful to work this job that respects people and people's well-being in a way where those kinds of things are not the, not the norm, not the expectation. There are still times when, you know, we're, we're having to work more than 40 hours a week, you know, that kind of stuff comes up, but it's one of those things where there's, there's always a, a reason for that where there's something special going on, whether it's, you know, it's launch week on some big initiative yep. or like, oh, like this person's got some personal thing going on. Let's, let's all run yep. together and see what we can do to take it. It's not like a built into the business model. Everybody needs to be overworked <laughs> all the time. So I think, you know, when you see an agency that has 
longer tenure. I think you really got to give a lot of credit to the the folks in leadership, and especially you know at the the highest levels of leadership at the consultancy. So I'm I'm really glad for our exec team over the years um, and their perspective on things. I mean, some of the things that I that that keep me at Studio Science over the years is one. I just I love the agency consultancy environment. I love the variety of different yep. clients that we get to work with, different problems that we get to solve. And one of my favorite things is just getting to see how quickly people grow here. I've been in both in-house and agency environments. And while not every agency or consultancy is the same and not every in-house environment is the same, I've consistently seen people grow more meaningfully and more quickly in an agency environment rather than in-house. And I'm, I mean, maybe it's just me, but have, have you seen similarly? Have you seen that in your oh, yeah. front of an I agency? Mean, if, if I could kind of give someone the advice of like, you know, how do you want to grow fastest? I would say <laughs> go work at an agency for two years and then decide what you want to do. Cause you, you're right. It's like, you have to juggle, you know, different projects. You have to have kind of a more generalized skill set. You're not going to just going to go there and do one thing for six months. You're going to be, you know, learning about probably everything from SEO to like design, visual hierarchy, just by rubbing shoulders with so many different teammates and juggling so many different projects and pitching in and just trying to figure things out. So agency life is certainly not for everyone, even like calm agency life. But I think there's nothing else that kind of really gives you the workout like an agency does. It's going to give you the, the mm. you know, the full body workout and, <laughs> and you can kind of decide, you know, where you want to go from there. But it's, I mean, people always ask, like, are you agency trained? Not people that always ask, but pe- that's a thing people do ask, right? Like, I mean, are you agency trained? Like people don't ask if you're in-house trained, right? Like that's not a thing. Dude. So yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Fun. It's yeah, it's for me, I get too bored on just one thing. So I need to have multiple things kind of going on. I need to have like an end date on something. I need to see something else coming. So it's just very good for my, my mind and like mental health to, to kind of think and plan for things at, at different intervals. But uh, yeah, I would, I would highly agree that you'll level up very quickly in an agency. For sure. Yeah. I, it's definitely been true for myself as well. Not just, you know, seeing it. I've, I've grown way more at the studio than in my time before it. And especially, I mean, to contrast it to, or, or to connect it to the freelance conversation we're having, you know, as, as much as I love freelancing and would definitely advocate it for, for people to gain experience. I remember, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, how isolated I felt. But then I remember when I went from, freelancing, you know, in the evenings and weekends and on the off hours to joining full-time the the team at Studio Science and just being surrounded with people that also cared about design as much as I do and were, you know, super talented and and everybody had their own skill sets and and strengths. What a breath of fresh air that was. And I hadn't hit me until then, like how much I had been, I think, mourning that loss of creative community that I had lost like after college. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's not like there was none, but it was definitely less. And then to get that back in full and and joining studio was so, so, uh, 
nourish. Yeah. You know, that's really cool. And I think agencies are also easier to get jobs at. And this is just my, like my perception, right? Cause like agencies always have either too much work or not enough work. And if they have too much work, they want to know who, like they want to have a, uh, people that they've been talking to or having interviews with or contractors that they can, you know, bring onto the team and, and use for projects and what, what have you. So like, if you want to do the freelance thing, or even if you want to break into agency work, I think it's very, very low barrier to entry just to reach out to other agencies and be like, Hey, you ever want freelance work or overflow work? I'm available. I do this really, really well. Mm -hmm. I do the specific skill set really, really well. And then probably sometime in the next six months, you know, they're going to remember you or remember that conversation. But it's very easy to bring someone on as a contractor versus like full time. So uh, people do that a lot. They'll reach out to UX Cabin. And, you know, from time to time, that works really great. And when I was a freelancer, I did that and got some really nice, you know, contracts from different agencies. So I, I don't know. I feel like the barrier to entry to agency world is a little bit even less than like in-house type stuff where you, they might have time to do like six or eight interviews when agencies like, wow, oh, we got to, we had to start yesterday. Like, that's the, mm. you know. yeah, could be. Yeah. I, I haven't noticed a, a difference in level of difficulty to land a full-time role at w- yeah. one or the other or in from, from those that I've spoken with, but I think that's a great point that treating agencies as potential clients when you're a freelancer can be a great way to to build a business. Because like you said, there's always that need. The good agency is always going to want to have a, a short list of trusted contract yeah. partners. And so building that, building and maintaining that relationship can be a really great way to, to get work. And I mean, as it ended up working out for me, it could be a path exactly. to a you know, future role when there's a, when there's a great Exactly. Fit. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe you can kind of give us some insight into your just philosophy for like building and maturing a design team. Yeah. Yeah. So what I've, a couple of things that I've learned over the years, one is how important it is to have different levels of experience and different kinds of, of talent within the team. I've led teams that are full of experience folks. And, and that is really great in a lot of ways, but in, in hiring a mix of different skill sets, I've also seen the importance of having a mix of junior, mid and senior level talent in the way that offers opportunities for the senior level talent to gain experience in mentorship for junior level talent to be your, your future mid and senior level talent kind of building that talent pipeline yep. both internally within the team, as well as you, you know, most people are familiar with doing that externally is I think, you know, hard to, hard to overemphasize when it comes to building a design team and thinking about kind of the, the sustainability of your design team. The other thing that I've learned over the years is how to create space for designers. And so when I first started leading a team, I had this misconception that I needed to have all the answers. And and not only did I need to have all the answers, but I needed to be the one to provide all the answers, which as you can probably imagine, did not give the designers on my team the time and room 
they needed to find the answers themselves. So I was robbing them of opportunities to grow. So as soon as I started to let go, to delegate more and not to jump in and provide answers immediately, it created the space for others to grow and really flourish. And then for me to focus on other things, it ended up being a, a, a win-win. But I think that ability to let go and to create space is something I had to learn and that I've, I've seen, you know, that I've had the opportunity now to, to manage managers to, you know, I think that's something that's not uncommon for people to take a little bit to get used to, but can make a huge difference because I mean, some of the folks that end up being kind of your, your star players are those that are going to thrive the most when you let go and when you create the space for them to figure things out. But yeah, I, I think that's always a tricky thing is at first is like letting go. And cause you're like, I know how I would do it. I'm going to let go and watch, what kind of keep an eye on this. And sometimes I've even surprised myself where I'm letting go. It's not getting done how I would have done it, but that's okay because it ends up that this person had a different or a better or just an alternative idea to me. And I wouldn't have figured it out that way, but you know, they, they were able to get it to, you know, an acceptable point by figuring it out on their own path. But I'd be interested from your perspective, you know, when, how do you know when to step in to kind of help swoop in and save something or do most people usually raise their hand, maybe even too early before something goes south? Yeah, it depends on, depends on the person. Some people are, are more like raising their hand at the first sign of uncertainty and it's more of a tactic of like, yep, I get it. Like, you know, you want to be sure, but like you're heading in the right direction. It's a reassurance kind of thing. And then some folks are maybe a little too eager to go out there and, and to do it and are not going to raise their hand when they see something. And so I think realizing what situation you're in and that kind of situational leadership style is really important. With a, in a consultancy environment, the, the line I think becomes a little clearer because the, I mean, the line for me is like, is this something where this is going to damage the success of the project or yep. damage the client relationship? If so, that's a time to rip in. If not, if it's something where, all right, yeah, if, uh, you know, if this design system gets organized this way, or if we use this research method instead of this research method, are we still going to get the same results? But maybe, you know, we end up spending, you know, 20% more hours on it at no cost to the client, you know, what, whatever it is, if it's like a, a relatively low stakes kind of thing, then it's like, yeah, you know, that, that's something where it's, it's not worth the, the cost of, of jumping in cost being, you know, could be detrimental to that designer's sense of autonomy or, or competence yep. or ability to learn through actually, you know, experiencing the, the consequences of something themselves. Then, uh, you know, to me, that's the line is, you know, project and client success. Uh, I'd be curious for, for those in, in in-house roles, how they draw that line. Yeah. But I think that's one of the benefits to a consultancy is that, you know, there's a pretty clear line of what's, what you can risk and what you can't, right. you know, it's, it's not an option to put the client's success. At least. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's, that's a great point. No, I wonder, I, and I think it's different for, for in-house. I, I tend to think that in-house has a little bit more play with, you know, the politics and the hierarchy of things as to how things go. And obviously that's very dependent on how big the organization and what, whatnot 
But for agency world, it's, it's, you know, pretty much one-to-one for like client success and, and, and client happiness. Like if this, then, then good. If, if, if not, then fix it. Yes. And the deadlines too. I mean, you talk about flexibility. It's like, right. You know, we, we don't have flexibility on deadlines. Right. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you see this all the time. Like if, if the client wants to shift the deadline, like that's their yeah, problem. Totally. You know? So if you're in an in-house team, you might have a little more flexibility <laughs> in that way. Totally. Wanted to kind of just wrap things up kind of by revisiting our discussion point on, on service design. I know we had talked through kind of the differences of product design and service design and, um, a few different things in, in that realm, but wanted to, you know, just kind of get your, your final take on kind of the, you know, studio sciences, do you, when it comes to service design and how you guys kind of strategize around an engagement for service design that helps you guys be successful in that. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite things about service design, but also the one that makes it difficult to have a concise answer for something like that is how much it requires you to embrace the ambiguity of the problem and even to reframe. Sometimes it requires us to be very consultative with our client about, you know, what, what they're experiencing. We can't have a boilerplate, like here's a, a service design right. that you buy and we go, we go do it. Right. You know, for example, we were working with a large manufacturing client recently, and we started out with the stated problem of like, there's this adoption problem. Think probably an onboarding problem. We released this new digital service. Nobody's using it. Nobody's registered. We don't know what's going on. We think it's probably an, an onboarding problem. We're like, yeah, we've seen stuff like that before. You're probably right. It's probably an onboarding problem, but you know, we're going to take this service design approach. We're going to talk to different stakeholders, really map out the current state of the experience. We'll talk to the OEMs, the dealers, the end customers, the internal stakeholders, everybody's kind of involved along the way of getting people on board along this, the, the intended journey. And then through all that, as we map the current state, it becomes increasingly clear. Like, oh, actually, it's not a an onboarding problem necessarily. It's not an adopt. Well, it is ultimately an adoption problem, but not in the way that we thought it. It's not actually about a poor experience along the way. It's a total lack of awareness. Like there are all these complete breaks in the chain yep. that we find out when we map the current state. It's like, hey, the end customer isn't even aware that y'all sell this thing. The dealers know, like nobody's selling it. Nobody knows how to sell it. There are these people that are specifically incentivized not to sell it because they've got their own thing to sell. <laughs> and so that becomes a much more like, all right, let's reframe what we're actually here to do. And let's figure out like, how do we get the right stakeholder team? Like, you know, before if we were talking to IT, uh, right, you know, now we, we don't really need to talk to IT yet. We need to talk to the sales and marketing team. Let's figure out like what this process actually needs to look like because the the whole service and the customer journey doesn't start after the customer's already signed up. It's their their whole experience. So they're becoming aware of it and being marketed to and all that. It's all part of the journey for us to help solve for. Very cool. So why do you think that you guys have been so successful over the years in this? Is it is it really the the strategy flexibility and being able to shift when something new comes up? Or what's what's kind of your secret sauce if you could put a phrase on it? Yeah. I mean, I think the the big reason is there's just a huge need for this kind of work, especially in large organizations. I'm going to 
again, I'm terrible at attribution of, of quotes, but there, there was something that said something along the lines of the most crucial new skill in business in the next, you know, 10, 20 years is going to be the ability to deal with ambiguity and complexity because there's all these systems that are being put in place and there's more and more technology and, and new rules and layers and all the stuff being put into place. And so what we really need now is for some is for people that are able to cut through the clutter, make sense of the chaos and find ways to progress forward. And that's something that we as designers kind of, no matter what kind of design you're doing, but that design mindset prepares us well yep. for. And so because we approach things with that design mindset of, you know, let's not, let's not oversimplify. Let's seek to understand the current state first, look at the different opportunities and challenges, reframe the problem when we need to, and then iterate on solutions before we implement. That's the way that change needs to happen in complex situations. And so because of that, I think that's why you see a lot of organizations, large and small, but especially you see larger organizations just going through huge hiring initiatives. And, you know, I, th I think that's just going to continue to be a trend, you know, the, the teams, the, the role names, all, all of that, the terminology might change, but that kind of design mindset and the ability to embrace ambiguity like that, I think it's going to continue to be a need that companies just need to be able to approach problems through more of a designerly mindset than through a more, you know, traditional business yep. thinking mindset that requires more certainty and has a harder time dealing with ambiguity yep. that that's just going to open up that need even more in a way that we as designers can help to solve. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you for sharing all of your journey and your insight and your wisdom. Really appreciate the time. And I'll let you have the final word. Awesome. Seth, I uh, really appreciate you having me. This is a great chat. And uh, yeah, if anybody is interested in chatting more, feel free to reach out. I'll post a link to my LinkedIn. Always happy to connect with anybody, talk product design, service design, whatever. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Justin. Thanks. Uh, take care. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, more to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.